Hello, this is the Order of the Mustard Seed podcast, and I'm your host, Jill Weber. Well, can I say what a, um, a real delight it's been for me to be uh, a friend of the 24-7 family for a number of years now, and to, uh, uh, I was with you in Geneva a couple of years ago, and it's been great to be with you today, and uh, uh, a couple of years ago, when I got a phone call or an email, I can't remember what it was, to ask me if I'd consider being a visitor to the uh, Order of the Mustard Seed. It didn't take me long uh, to decide the answer, and it's a great privilege for me and for Billy to, to play this role, uh, and uh, particularly to see you make the vows uh, you've made today. And it's particularly um, great delight for me to do this in, in Ireland. I, I come from a long Irish family, and so being able to pray for um, the church here in Ireland, thinking of those um, saints who made vows like the ones you've made today in this island, and from which... Uh, Europe was evangelized in the years gone by, and it's good to be part of that spiritual heritage today. Uh, This morning, I just want to offer a few thoughts on um, an issue which has always been at the heart of uh, monastic movements through the history of the church, which is the relationship between uh, movements within the church where people make vows to uh, uh, religious communities, whether sort of localized or dispersed, like this one here, uh, and the church itself. And uh, right away from the very beginning, when um, people gathered together to make special vows in the Christian faith, that was always a little bit of an issue, how you relate sort of monastic communities to uh, the church itself. Um, Back in the Middle Ages, they used to uh, ponder this one quite a bit. Very often, the uh, story was used of the um, uh, Mary and Martha. Uh, and Jesus' interaction with them. And sometimes the image was given that uh, you know, those who committed themselves to a life of, of prayer and, and devotion and poverty and simplicity uh, were kind of like Mary, um, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Whereas those who were out in the world, you know, earning their crust and who were kind of doing jobs and keeping society going, they were like Martha. They were doing the kind of hard work and graft out there. And uh, that kind of works a little bit, but it slightly gave the impression, because you always feel in that story, um, Jesus has a bit of a soft spot for Mary, doesn't he? Because, you know, she has chosen the better part. And, um, and so it always slightly gave the impression that you know, those who were, like, had made the vows and who were part of monastic communities were somehow sort of slightly better than the ones who were out there in the world doing uh, the stuff out, out there at the same time. They were somehow uh, superior to those who were kind of like ordinary members of the baptized. And I guess one of the things that we have to say in the Christian faith is that the highest Christian calling, the highest Christian calling is not to be ordained, it's not to be a member of a monastic order, it's not to be a bishop. The highest Christian calling is to be baptised. There's nothing higher than that. Everything else is subject to that. That's the highest thing you can ever do, is to be baptised into the name of Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So... If the Mary and Martha thing doesn't quite work in quite the same way that it should, how is this going to work out? And uh, let's want to do a bit of history in, in this for a moment, because in the 12th century, uh, this became a real issue. Um, in the 12th century, there were a lot of these groups uh, emerging within the church. And if you look across the 12th century church, you see all kinds of um, groupings that were kind of part of the church, but uh, going off in this direction or another. There were the, the Waldensians from the Valdez of Neon. Um, this uh, very remarkable Christian who abandoned his own wealth and his family and who gathered a whole set of followers around him and they used to travel barefoot uh, around um, Europe preaching the gospel. The problem is none of them had any training. Uh, Sometimes they came out with some really kind of weird ideas about Christian faith. They were not very um, well-educated and so they were kind of part of this this group. They were the, the poor Lombards. 
they were in an Italian movement. Valdez was in sort of Switzerland, Austria, and the Alps. But um, you know, the poor Lombards were an Italian version of uh, the same thing. Um, again, they were a little bit kind of rough and ready. Uh, all kinds of weird things happened. Stories went out around them. There was one particular story that went out around the poor Lombards where uh, they were holding a, a communion service in a kind of farmyard and somebody sort of knocked over the chalice. And uh, you can imagine what that meant. And it was... Um, uh, the hens started coming up and you know, kind of, uh, you know, picking up the, the the wine and the bread and so on. That was a bit of a scandal, as you can imagine, in the church. Uh, there was the humiliati in northern Italy. Now, these humble ones, very often married couples or individuals, taking vows of simplicity and, and poverty, wearing coarse habits and kind of wandering around like kind of wild men and women uh, in the streets. And then there were the Cathars, the, the Albigensians, as they were sometimes called. So you again had a very odd kind of Gnostic theology in sort of southern uh, France. And um, at the time, uh, there was a, a very wise, one of the greatest uh, popes of the Middle Ages, um, Innocent III. He became Pope in 1198, and he inherited a situation in the church where all these groups were kind of emerging, and he had to work out, what do you do with them? If you're Pope, what do you do with these movements? Do you accept them? Do you reject them? So far, people attended, the church attended to kind of say, no, 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 these are all a bit risky. Let's keep them out. And then it had this real issue as to what he was going to do with these things. Now, those groups I've mentioned so far, uh, they don't really exist anymore. You don't meet too many poor Lombards or Humiliati or Valdensians. Maybe a few of those around, but um, not many of them have really survived. The two groups that were around at the time have survived. The Franciscans and the Dominicans. Because they arrived around the same time. And I guess the question is, why is it that the Franciscans and the Dominicans survived, whereas the other ones didn't? And the answer is very simple. The Franciscans and the Dominicans loved the church. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. They loved the church. There was something in all of those other movements that was kind of critical of the church. They wanted to leave the church behind. They felt they were somehow better than the church. Either the theology was better, or the devotion was better, or they were more superior to the, the rest of the church. <coughs> when Innocent looked across this realm of different movements around the church at his time, he recognized this as the key mark of a real move of the Spirit. Does this group love the church of Jesus Christ? Innocent knew that basic principle of the Christian life, that if you love Jesus, you have to love his bride as well. And it was illustrated for uh, Innocent. And he, you know, he, he struggled to find this. He didn't find it very easy. In 1209, um, St. Francis had just founded his new order and people were beginning to kind of gather around him. And he, uh, he travelled to Rome to, to meet the Pope, to meet Pope Innocent III, to try and get him to recognise this new order that he'd started. And uh, as he came near to Rome, he was uh, fortunate enough to, to, to bump into the, the confessor, the personal confessor uh, to the Pope, uh, who was a, a bishop at the time. And this, this guy was quite impressed with Francis, and he, and he managed to get uh, Francis to have an, an audience uh, with uh, Innocent. And um, Innocent met him, quite impressed, um, thought he was okay, so I think it will give you temporary uh, permission to, uh, to carry on doing what you're doing. Uh, let's see how it goes for a little while, and then I'll see you in a while, in, in a short time. Uh, but he was a little bit, you know, again, not quite sure what to make of, of Francis. And then later, a bit later on, uh, there was a, a gathering was, um, was arranged where Francis was to have an audience, a second audience with Innocent. And the night before... Innocent was due to meet with Francis. He was a little bit reluctant. This, this kind of slightly weird Italian small guy is going to keep on badgering me about his order. What am I going to do about him? And the night before, Innocent had a dream. 
And in the dream, he saw the great church of St. John Lateran, which was the, this, this, this enormous church in Rome, which was the symbol of the universal church. That's the, uh, that church was the symbol of the church across the world. And he saw this dream. In this dream, the church, this great solid church, was crumbling. It was teetering. It was sounded like it was about to kind of collapse. And then he realized that somehow the church was being held back from being collapsed by, by someone who was just underneath the church, holding it up. And as he looked closer, he saw this little man who was holding the church, had a little brown habit on it. And in fact, this was Francis himself. That Francis was somehow holding up and supporting this symbol of the church across the world. Now, Innocent was a a deeply spiritual, prayerful man, and he recognized this dream as a word from the Lord from him, for him. And so the day after, when he met Francis, he recognized that this was Francis's calling, that this movement of the Franciscans was, in fact, something that was there to support and to strengthen and to give life to the church. And in that little story, I think you can see what is the role of religious orders, of which the order of the mustard seed is one. They are intended as a gift from Jesus Christ to the church. They are called to love the church, to strengthen the church. They are renewal movements within the church, not replacing the church, not criticizing it, not making the rest of the church feel inferior because they haven't made vows like you have, but to spur the church on to be more truly itself. Now, how do you do that? Just suggest three quick things that as members of the Order of the Mustard Seed, those who've taken your vows in the past or today, ways in which you can exercise this calling to love the Church of Jesus Christ. First one, do everything you can to build up the Church. Um, St. Francis was uh, one of those who, um, he found himself as a young man sort of frustrated by uh, the element of the crisis of the church. And the church had been through a kind of tough time uh, in the, um, the earlier 12th, 11th and 12th centuries with schisms and um, you know, doctrinal controversies and so on. But the great thing about St. Francis is that he never despised the church. In fact, the movement was all about building up the church. In fact, when the movement began in 1205, just four years before he went to see uh, Innocent, um, uh, Francis was praying in, in one of the churches around Assisi. He was praying in, in uh, the, uh, the, church, the church called San Damiano, which was a derelict chapel uh, quite near to the town of Assisi where, where he lived. And as he was praying in this, this chapel, he heard Jesus speak to him. And he heard Jesus say to him, Francis... Go rebuild my church, which you see is falling into ruins. Now, Francis, I'm literally, literally minded man. In fact, the church he was in was in a bit of a state. Um, the building was not very good, and then the roof was falling in. And you know, you may feel your church would be a bit like this, but Francis's church was like this. So he, he thought this was literally meant that he had to go and rebuild this particular church. And so he used to go around the streets of CC, sort of trying to get people to give him the bricks so he could go along and kind of rebuild this church. But then, then he gradually began to realize that, that no, no. God was calling him not just to rebuild this particular church of San Damiano, but his calling was to help rebuild the church in Europe. And when he heard that voice saying to him, Francis, go rebuild my church, which you see is in ruins, Francis' answer was this. He said, yes, this is what I want. This is what I long for with all my heart. And it's that answer is why I think the Franciscans still exist today. Yes, this is what I want with all my heart. I want to build up a church. I don't want to build up a Franciscan order. 
I don't want to build up the name of St. Francis. I'm going to build up the Church of Jesus Christ. And so the aim of the Franciscan order was always that. It was never the glory of Francis. It was never the upbuilding of the order for its own sake. It was always for the sake of the church. And so when you go to your local church, your local church may be fantastic. It may be the best local church in the world. Maybe there are struggles and there are difficulties and there are fights and there are stuff that goes on in the local church. And you might get frustrated with it. But you need that spirit when you go to your local church. Say, Jesus saying to you, rebuild my church. And so that your answer is, yes, this is what I want. This is what I long for with all my heart. To see this church built up in the faith. Built up in the knowledge of God, built up in the passion to see people come to Christ. And so there's the first thing, is build up the church. Second thing I think that religious orders like this can do is to remind the church of the call to discipleship. Monastic uh, communities like this are always one that's, uh, that's take vows. Traditionally, those vows have been uh, poverty or obedience or simplicity. Uh, for you, it's the vows that you've taken uh, just now. One of the things about Christian, Christian life is that sometimes we can think that um, those who take those serious vows for some po- poverty and simplicity and, and obedience, they're a little bit odd. They're a bit sort of weird. Whereas the, you know, real discipleship is just, you know... <coughs> Tame, really, just you know, give a little bit of money on a Sunday, turn up to church on a Sunday morning, but that's basically about it. But actually, when you read the words of Jesus, it's actually the other way around, isn't it? And when Jesus says, Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples, yeah. it's kind of that radical call to be a disciple that that's normal discipleship. Now, we're all on different roads on this. Some of us find this a little bit easier than others. Some of us have, you know, our different callings make that harder or easier. But the monastic call was always that reminder, that spurring on of the church to radical discipleship. Recalling the whole church to the disciplines of the Christian faith, those disciplines of silence or the reading of scripture or prayer or work. Or in your case, to live prayerfully, to celebrate creativity, to practice hospitality, to express God's mercy and justice for lifelong learning, for mission and evangelism. Now, in a sense, every Christian is called to those things. The vows you've taken today are things that are, in a way, standard discipleship. And your calling is to live the life of a disciple just that little bit more in a more focused way, in a more publicly accountable way, because you've made your vows in front of all of us. We've all seen it. You're publicly accountable for the vows you've taken, but you do that for the sake of the church. To remind the rest of the church of the disciplines that in the way we all need, whether or not we've taken vows, to follow Jesus Christ. So one of the ways in which you can help and support your local church is not in a, you know, not in that kind of boastful way, yeah, yeah, I've taken vows. But just simply reminding people of the disciplines of faith. And showing people the benefits of living a disciplined life. Not insisting that everybody takes the vows that you have. But encouraging every Christian to live disciplined vows in whatever way God has called them to do that. Because the Christian life cannot be lived without discipline. It cannot be lived without in some way disciplining our desires and our thoughts and our feelings. And by taking these vows, we are feel like spurring each other on to holiness. And so that's the second thing, which is to remind the church of the call to discipleship. And the third and the last thing 
the ways in which you can support your local church and the wider church is by praising humility above all else. Humility was always one of the great monastic virtues. Uh, when you read the Benedictine rule, uh, you, you kind of realize how important humility is. There's a big section on humility in the Benedictine rule. Um, and I think the reason for that is because Benedict, like any leader of a monastic order, of any order like this, knows that the, probably the, the number one temptation of those who've taken vows is pride. It's to think, I've taken vows, therefore I'm somehow special. And so that's why the, the great virtue of the monastic life is humility. Benedict calls it the highest state of heavenly exaltation. Because humility is about knowing who we are in the world. It's knowing that we are not God. That God is God and we are his beloved creation. And pride is the lie of thinking that I am the most important thing and person in the world. It's self-deception. And humility inverts the way of the world. The way of the world is one where we kind of go up through pride, we go down in humility. In fact, what Benedict says, it's, kind of, it's a bit like a ladder, but it's the ladder the other way around. We go down through pride and up through humility. Yeah. We usually think self-assertion is the way to get on in life, to progress. But actually to step back, to give space for others, that chaotic attitude to life, where we hold back our ego, we try not to fill the room, we allow others the voice, the space. That's true humility. And so approach your local church with humility. As it says in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. And as Paul says in Romans 15, let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbringing. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. As God has called you to make a vow today, that's a wonderful thing, it's a great thing. Not all are called to what you have done. Others are called to different paths. And yet the calling you have made today is a call to love the church and to serve the church. I've often reflected how at particular times of crisis or need within the church, God seems to raise up monastic orders at those very points. At the end of the Roman Empire, when civilization was falling apart across Europe, that's when he called out the Benedictine order that basically held and kept Christianity and learning alive during those dark days uh, as the Middle Ages began. In the 12th century, this time of great crisis again for the church, that's when he called out the Dominican and the Franciscan movements. In the 18th century, at a time of great upheaval, uh, within Europe, he called the Moravians and groups like that. And maybe today he's calling out groups like this to do that same thing. And so your call, I would suggest, is this, to love the church, to build up the church, to model the disciplines of Christian faith, and to prize humility. And if you do that, you will be a great gift. You will be a a fragrant offering, as it were, not just to Christ, but to his bride, the church. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Order of the Mustard Seed podcast. For more information about the order, you can find us at orderofthemustardseed.com or on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. May God grant us grace as we follow his invitations to be true and to be kind and to go. Go.